Well, I am excited to get back to the series, and if you have your Bible with you, if you could open up to John chapter 14. If you do not have your Bible, then grab one of those blue ones in the pew. It is page 901, and you're going to need to be in the book. This is a very famous passage, one of the most quoted verses in all of Scripture, especially when we get to verse 6. But we're going to be looking at this. We're in the I Am series, and I want to tell you something that uh, you might find interesting. Surprisingly, a lot of us don't know what I'm about to tell you. You know this part. There are 66 books in the Bible. 66. You count them up between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And this is the part that a lot of people don't know. The Bible, when it was originally written at lots of different stages, when it was originally written, it did not have chapters and verses. There were not chapter divisions. There were not verses. When did they come into being? Well, 1227 AD, they were organized, the Bible, all 66 books, organized into chapters. That's 1227 AD. Then 1448 AD, verses were put into the Old Testament. 1555 AD, they were put into the New Testament. And it made navigating the Bible a whole lot easier. It made it so the preacher could say, open up your Bible to John chapter 14. We're going to start at verse 1. It made it a lot more simple to do that, but it inadvertently caused a tendency to lose the context of the Scripture. Because you kind of think, all right, John chapter 14, new thought, new direction, and that's not at all what happened. This is just a continuation of the conversation that Jesus was having with his disciples. So when you get to chapter 14, verse 1, there is absolutely no way, especially when you get to the famous verse 6, to really understand what Jesus is saying, or better, why he's saying it, unless you go back to what he had been saying. And you're going to have to go back further than chapter 14 to be able to get to that. We're going to look at that. So we're in the I Am series. This is the sixth of seven I Am statements in the Gospel of John, which are followed by a metaphor. There's a lot of I Am statements in the Gospel of John. But there's seven of them that have a metaphor attached. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. There's a lot of them. There's, there's seven of them. We're in the sixth one. And what we are going to find is that Jesus is having dinner with his disciples. And it's the evening before he's going to be crucified on the cross. Now, I don't know about you, but when you know you've got something really, really difficult coming up, who do you spend those, those hours with before you have to go do it? If you know you're going to be going away for a while, and you're going to be maybe going to the military like one of my children, or you're going to go to college, and you've got one more evening, who is it you're going to spend it with, and what are you going to do? Well, this is premium time for Jesus. Earlier in the week, the weight, the weight of what he was about to experience descended down on his soul. Now, if you've been through difficult times in life, you know that phrase, to descend down on your soul. It could be crushing to us. Now, I want you to go back. You ready? Let's get our context. Chapter 12, verse 27. 
John chapter 12, verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, Jesus says. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. This purpose, this purpose created a burden, and the burden even continued while they were having dinner. Now you're in the upper room in chapter 13. Look at what it says in verse 21. John 13, 21. This is getting the context. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Now, this is the second time that word has come up. Troubled. And he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now remember, chapter 13, he's going to die on the cross in hours. This is between the hours likely of 8 o'clock and 11 o'clock in the evening. The very next morning at 9 o'clock, he's going to be nailed to the cross. Six hours later, he's going to die. 5.30 in the morning, he's going to be hauled before Pilate, the Roman governor. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be scourged. He's not going to have anything to eat. He's going to have all of the people of Israel turn against him, almost virtually everyone. This is what lies ahead of him. And his soul, his spirit is troubled. But now look at chapter 14. This is so Jesus. Now he says, let not your hearts be troubled, disciples. I mean, don't you find that ironic? Here is Jesus, the Son of God, going to die the worst death that they even had invented at that time, painfully. And he's going to die for our sins, but his focus is on his disciples. That's love. I tell you what, you want to know how well you love? If I want to know how well I love, then get me on my worst day and see how much I pay attention to people around me. Get you on your worst day when you've got everything going wrong in your life and see how, where your eyes are on yourself or on other people. That's going to tell you how well you love. Jesus loves like no other ever has. But why would their hearts be troubled? He's telling his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Why? Well, if you look at chapter 13, you're going to see three reasons why. Look in verse 21. We're in John 13 now. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So he's saying really clearly. He's not speaking in parabolic form. He's not using a story. He's not hiding anything. He says to the entire group, one of you is going to betray me. And then he follows that in verse 33, little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So he spent three years with them, and now he's telling them, I'm saying goodbye. Where I'm going, you can't follow me. So that's two things. One of you is going to betray me. I'm getting ready to leave you, and you cannot follow me. But then he tells Peter in verse 38, chapter 13, verse 38, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Listen, these are three bombs that he detonates in that group of 12 men. One of you is going to betray me. Where I'm going to go, you cannot follow, and I'm about to leave you. And Peter, you're going to deny me three times, even before the rooster crows tomorrow morning which will be before 6 o'clock in the morning. 
this was a very troubling dinner. And Jesus tells them not to be troubled. He says, don't be troubled. I know I just told you three huge things, but here, I don't want you to be troubled. I don't want you to be bothered to the point where you lose your peace. And what we're about to see is truth from Jesus to a troubled soul. Now listen, that either sweeps all of us into it because almost all of us have experienced a troubled soul, or listen, it will sweep you into it. You're not going to get off this planet before you experience a troubled soul. You're not. And when you experience it, there are some words that Jesus would have for you to help you get through it, to help you navigate through it and endure through it. And at the very center of what we're about to see and what we're about to hear, we're going to see the revelation that Jesus gives, that he is the way he is the life, and he is the truth. We're going to see who Jesus is and what he is doing for us. And as we've said before in this series, the I Am statements of Jesus show uniquely the character of Jesus and the work of Jesus. So what I'm going to give you, right straight from chapter 14, are some ways to be able to endure trouble when it comes to your soul. Number one, when your heart is troubled, remember to trust Jesus. Remember to trust Jesus. You could put it in there, remember to trust God. Let me tell you a super quick story about this. Some of you may have heard this before. Um, years ago, we did a beach retreat when I was a youth pastor here down at one of our congregants' homes down in Lavalette, New Jersey. And he has a, or he had rather, a 26-foot crown liner boat, a sweet boat. And he took us through the bay, took us out in the ocean. Now, on that beach retreat, now listen to this, we went through Barnegat Bay Lighthouse, and we got into the ocean, and on that beach retreat, I took my now 21-year-old son, who leads worship, one of the ones that leads worship here, who was then four to five years old. He's a little boy then. And we're out in the ocean, and when you go down into the water, and the waves are up over your head, it is very disconcerting when you're in that boat. So you're down in the troughs, you're on the crest, you're up high, then you're down low. And he went from the front of the boat and climbed right straight onto my lap and within two minutes fell soundly asleep. Now I want you to, to keep that imagery in your mind. When you go through troubled waters, when you get into difficulty that registers at your soul, it descends down at your soul level, almost chokes you. When you get there, Jesus says, number one, you've got to trust God. You've got to trust me. Something I keep learning is that trouble comes to the righteous and the unrighteous. Some of us lose our jobs. Some of us eke out a living going from paycheck to paycheck. Some of us have marriages that are just honestly hard. And some of our kids are going to rebel against us. Some of us are going to get cancer Sometimes our children die horribly and our faithful friends are persecuted all because they're Christian faith. Listen, you've got to fix it. When you're in those times, friends, you've got to fix it. You've got to anchor it. You've got to get it tied into your mind that life is full of trouble and difficulties. Listen, don't let that surprise you. If you're younger than 35, that's an arbitrary age number. 
But if you're younger than 35, I'm going to tell you one of the best things I could ever tell you. Get it in your mind that you're going to go through some extremely difficult experiences. That is life, and we all go through them. Now listen, don't put it in your mind. You might go through them. You just better get it in there and drive it down. You're going to go through them. And when they come, here's how you respond. you got to get to verse 1 and believe. you got to trust. Now how do I know that you're going to go through trouble? Can I see into the future? No, I can see to the past, and I can read the words of Job. Man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. That's life. We're born to trouble. Troubles come, but they also often leave us troubled. So troubles come, and when they do, sometimes they leave us, look at the word, troubled. And what a word this is. Now, what does Jesus mean, let not your hearts be troubled? What does that word troubled mean? If I were you, I would put this in your margin, underline it, draw it to the margin, and I'm going to tell you what it means. It was a word that was used when water became turbulent, but it had a figurative application as well. It's for the mind that is stirred up and agitated. So a troubled soul is a mind that is stirred up and agitated and full of anxiety. That's what it means, troubled. Let not, let not your hearts be troubled means that our hearts are not to be stirred up and agitated, but listen, to be at peace. Peace is the exact opposite of a troubled soul. Now, I want you to explain, I want to explain something. This is so critical. This will really, really, honestly, when I learned this, it snapped so much of the scripture into clarity and focus. The word heart is used Old Testament, New Testament. It is all through the Bible. And when you read the word heart, and when we speak of the word heart here at this church, what we're meaning biblically is it's the very center of a person. Now, listen, it's where we think where we feel and it's where we will meaning motivations so your heart biblically is not just the feeling part of you yes when you hear really good news about a baby being born and you feel that really that almost butterfly go through right here you think well man that's my heart that's the center of me and it's about emotions well it is about emotions but it's about your thinking we don't think we cognate in our brains, our neurons flash in our brain, but our thinking metaphysically, spiritually, happens in your heart. You may evaluate something coldly, rationally, logically using your brain, but the interpretive powers, the appreciation of something, that's here. That's in your heart. Now, I'm pointing here. The Bible doesn't say your heart spiritually is here, but that's where we feel it. That's where we think it lives because that's where it impacts us so the heart biblically is thinking feeling willing motivation so what is a troubled heart now look at verse one again let not your hearts be troubled what jesus is saying is don't have an agitated mind don't be unstable in your emotions and don't be erratic in your behavior why or how or what is it that we're to have a Christian is to have a still, a quiet, a peaceful heart. And the reason that is possible in the midst of trouble, well, look what he says. Believe in God, 
believe also in me. That's the stabilizer. It's called faith. Listen, if you're in troubled waters, now listen, some of you might be there now. Your boat of your life might be rocking like crazy, taking on water. You might be feeling like you're sinking. Listen, what do you do? What Jesus says, your first thing to do is have faith. Have faith in me, not in psychotherapy. And I'm a counselor. I'm a master's level counselor, and I'm still going to tell you, don't put your faith in psychotherapy. Don't put your faith in psychotropic drugs. Listen, your faith has got to be in one person. It is God. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Change one word. Well, a few words. Put your trust in God. Put your trust also in me. Now, how do you do that? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, so famous. Most of us know it. If you don't know it, you'll want to know it. And I just want to take you through it super quick on a tour. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 tells us how to do this. How do we, how do we get our hearts in the midst of trouble to peace? How do you get to that stillness? Because trouble's coming. So what do you do in the midst of it? Look what he says. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. It means, listen, my perspective, my opinion, oh, I hope you're hearing this. It feels so right, doesn't it? Doesn't your perspective in the midst of something feel 100% true and clear? That's the trap. And then we lean on it. But we cannot know everything. We do not have all knowledge. And the things that we see come through sinful hearts. And so sometimes it filters the reality of the situation. So we cannot lean on our own perspective. we got to trust in the Lord with all of our heart. Do not lean on your own perspective. Not your opinions. Not your thoughts. Sometimes, you know what? Sometimes your thoughts in the midst of trouble convince you that this trouble should not be happening. That it's not fair. That you didn't deserve this. Boy, I tell you what, when you start thinking like that, all of a sudden, God doesn't look so just. He doesn't look so loving. He doesn't look so kind. And those thoughts begin in the midst of trouble, convincing you there's no way you're going to endure this. You're not going to make it through this. That you're going to be undone by this. And God, who is your father that we're going to get to, knows exactly what you can endure. Knows exactly what I can endure. And he tailor makes trials to fit your faith. He wants you to fall on your face. He wants you to have too much on you that you can handle. Why? So that you will come to him. So that you will plead for his mercy. That you will do what he says. Believe in God and believe also in me. My anxiety. You all know what that means. Anxiety, by the way, is always fear of the future. It is always fear about what's going to happen, what you're convinced is going to happen. And my anxiety might be screaming that there will be a bad outcome, that the situation is hopeless, that nothing good can come from this trouble... But when I sit in my own counsel, my own counsel, rarely does my trust in God improve. And that's true for you as well. So he goes on in the other part of that, verse 6. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight 
your paths. You know, I need to flee to the counsel of the word of God. And I need to let the spirit of God take it down to my heart once again, because sometimes it gets to information level, but doesn't come to persuasion level. And when it's just information, you get a verse and you, 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 you at least do justice to it. You read it, maybe even memorize it, but it doesn't become persuasive. That's what faith does. Faith takes information and lets it persuade you. Faith gets it down to your heart where it explodes with transforming power. Listen, when it does not get there, then trouble looks like something you're not going to make it through. You gotta let the Spirit of God take it down your heart. Sometimes more than not, you need the people of God to speak the word into you. You can't sit in your own counsel. In all my ways, Tim Ackley, big and important decisions and little tiny decisions in my life, I've got to ask God, how does your word instruct me? How is your spirit guiding me? What would you want me to do, God? In every decision, listen, even as little of a decision, God, who do I pray for on my way to work? Because God might have somebody coming into trouble that afternoon, and you got to get ahead of it and pray for them, like Jesus did for Peter. Every way you're leaning on God, you got to believe in him and believe also in Jesus. And when you trust God, when you don't lean on your own perspectives, your own expertise, your own rightness, yet you go to the word, you let the spirit bring it down, the people of God bring it in. When you do that, peace begins to settle back in your heart. And listen, I'm going to tell you something from experience. You can be in the midst of trouble soul-crushing trouble and have peace now listen or you could be in light and momentary affliction and be completely undone you want to be able to persist in trouble with peace well the step first thing that jesus says you got to believe in god you got to believe in me let's go to point number two it's going to ramp up when your heart is troubled remember god is your father remember god is your father over and over, the Bible tells us, learn to lead our minds. You know you can do that. Do you know you can lead your mind rather than be led by your mind? People that are led by their mind are the most vacillating people. They're double-minded. You can learn by wisdom's power to lead your mind. The Bible puts it this way. Take every thought captive. Is this right thinking? And where in the Word of God does it say it? That's how you take it captive. Over and over, lead your mind, the Bible says. And the reason is this, lies and falsehoods can take up space in our hearts. And when they do, they create all kinds of problems. You know, one of my favorite all-time rock songs, I, I'm a, can I even tell you this? I'm a rocker. You know, the violin sounds great. Julia is so good at it. I just want blazing guitars <laughs> and violin in the background. I just like to rock, man. I like rock music. I grew up with it. I still like it, and I like Christian rock music. Striper, I think, are angels in black and yellow uniforms. <laughs> Nobody really got that because you didn't know Striper because you're sheltered and closed-minded. <laughs> Rush had the best drummer of any rock group in the history of mankind 
All right, that's my opinion. He, that guy was really good. They had this song called Tom Sawyer. A lot of you probably know it. One of the lines, and no, I'm not going to sing it, says this. No, his mind is not for rent to any God or government. Do you know you can rent your mind? That's a pretty insightful line. Do you know things can move into your mind and take up space and become strongholds? That's a pretty good line. No, his mind is not for rent to any God or government. Where I obviously would differ is you want your mind captivated by Jesus. You want your mind girded by the wisdom that he gives. But the truth is, worry and anxiety, they can rent space in your mind. And none of us are impervious to it. But when you are troubled in life, Jesus shows us, tells us what to do. And let me give you an astounding statistic from John chapter 13 through 17. You ready? This is amazing. Please write this down. In those chapters, 13 through 17 of John, the name of the Father is mentioned 53 times. Man, that's the Bible's way of saying, hey, can you see this? This is a neon marker. It's flashing for us. There's something really important about the Father being mentioned 53 times in the upper room alone. He factors pretty prominently in this. And it's the key to peace in troubled times. You've got to know your heavenly Father. That is the key. You've got to believe in God. You've got to have trust. You got to know your heavenly father look at john 14 verse 2 in our text in my father's house are many rooms look at verse 7 if you had known me you would have known my father also from now on you do know him and have seen him now listen we can know the father because jesus according to hebrews is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. You want to know what God the Father is like? Then study the life of Jesus. Because there's absolutely no difference between the character and the quality and the person of Jesus than the person of the Father. They're not too different, like one's kinder than the other. God's really wrathful and angry in the Old Testament. Thank goodness, here comes sweet Jesus in the New Testament. Listen, they're insane. They are the same in character and quality. He's not the man upstairs. Obliterate that from your vocabulary. He's not just a good man. He is God in flesh. And in Jesus and in the Father, or in Jesus rather, we can know the Father. And to know the perfect heavenly Father is to be flooded with the idea of one who protects, provides, and loves you like no other. Now listen, that's what an earthly father ought to be doing an earthly father ought to protect his family you know what i do every time i go in a restaurant it took denise and i 20 it took denise 25 and a half years to figure this out because we would go into a restaurant and she would go to sit down in a chair that's facing the entrance to the restaurant and i would just kindly say honey do you mind sitting over here and letting me sit there you know what she never knew why i did that every time she never asked me until about seven months ago. She says, why do you do that? I don't know if she was irritated or something. But she says, why do you do that? And I said, because I want to see the door. And if somebody comes in to threaten you, I want to be able to take action. But that's, I know man after man that does that. That's almost wired into masculinity. You want to do that. Listen, that's what a father does, protects. 
That's what a father should do, protects and provides and loves like no other. This is our heavenly father. And when you have the knowledge of our heavenly father, it will sustain you in trouble. Now look what it does for Jesus. It sustained him just hours before his crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was so troubled. They went to the garden. It's an olive tree grove. They went to the garden. He leaves his disciples. He goes another stone's throw and he falls on his face in prayer because he's about to be crucified. He was so troubled that Luke said, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Literally, that's a medical condition where your capillaries burst and the blood squeezes out your sweat pores and mingles with your sweat. This is what's happening to Jesus. It's called hematridosis. And then you get even further. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here, watch with me. Going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now listen, this is the greatest trouble that Jesus has ever experienced. And he's got a triplet of horrors that he's facing. Three horrors that are coming. Here they are. They're just in front of him. Number one, he's going to die physically in an excruciating death on the cross. Number two, way worse, he's going to be bearing the sins of the world of every single person that would ever believe in him for the first time tasting sin. The Bible says he would become sin for us. That's two, but even worse, for the first time in eternity, he's going to be separated from the Father. My God, my God, at noon on the cross, why have you forsaken me? The Holy Father cannot be in fellowship with a sinful, sin-bearing son. He knew this was coming. He's in the greatest trouble of his life ever. And who does he cry out to? His heavenly father. And we've got to do the same. When our minds and our hearts are stirred up from trouble, you cry out to your heavenly father. You fix your mind on the care, the love, the tenderness of Jesus demonstrated in the father. Or rather, the father demonstrated in Jesus who has shown us exactly who the Father is. But when your heart is troubled, number three, remember your future. Now look at verse two. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? My Father's house, by the way, is another way to say heaven where God's children will dwell with him for eternity. The Bible calls heaven, quote, the eternal kingdom. It calls heaven an inheritance, a country, a city, a home. There's lots of words, lots of uh, metaphors for heaven. It is the everlasting home for all of God's children. And in heaven, look what he says, are many rooms. If you've got the King James Version, it says mansions. That's a terrible, terrible translation. If you're thinking in your mind, I can't wait to get to heaven, I get my own palatial mansion. That's not at all what Jesus is saying. There is one house, and there are many rooms. And they are palatial rooms. They are beautiful rooms. Elvis, by the way, popularized one song that said, I've got a mansion just over the hilltop in that bright land where we'll never grow old. He's talking about heaven. There's another old country song that upgraded from a mansion 
It said a tent or a cottage. Why should I care? Why would I want that? They're building a palace for me over there. Listen, this is bad theology. This is narcissism spiritualized. It's all about self-centeredness. The many rooms are beautiful, amazing rooms in the estate of God's house. And some have taken verse 2 to mean that Jesus, once again, has taken up carpentry and he's busy in heaven building this massive house. Except look at the verse 2 again. It indicates the house is already built. It's already done. The God who made all creation in six days would not need 2,000 years to finish constructing heaven. It's finished. What is heaven? What are these many rooms? Well, let me get your mind going in a little bit different direction than maybe it's used to when you think about this. Ephesians 2 says it beautifully. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows, here it is, into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You want to know what he's talking about? He's talking about this dwelling place for God, and God is building it, and he's building it out of his people, his saints, his children, who make up heaven, who make up this home, who make up this dwelling place. Listen, heaven will be completed when the very last person to be saved comes to Christ. That's when it'll be done. When you think of heaven, think of a home. Robert Frost put it beautifully. A home is a place that when you arrive there, they have to take you in. That's not too bad of a definition, is it? No matter how wonderful our vacations, Denise and I always say, I don't know if we've ever not said this on a vacation, how good it is to be home. The Christian is made for a different home. And here we here in, on earth, we are aliens, we are strangers, pilgrims, sojourners. Christian, listen to me, we are made for heaven. And, we all, and when trouble finds us, listen, when trouble begins to crush your soul, when it finds you, remember the promise of Jesus, verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. That's your future. Now let me remind you, anxiety is fear of the future. Hope is faith in your future. Please remember that. If you can begin learning that and driving that down in your souls, you're going to have so much more peace in troubled times. Hope is faith in your future. But look at the fourth and final point. When your heart is troubled, remember, you can go to the Father with your cares. You've got to take them to him. And you know the way to where I am going, verse 4. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Poor Thomas. Every time you see Thomas on the landscape of Scripture, he's questioning, struggling in his faith. He's doubting. But you know what? I love it. Don't you love Thomas? Are you not glad that the Bible doesn't scrub away doubt? 
and struggle. Aren't you glad that there's no antiseptic approach to the scriptures? We've got Thomas. We've got Thomas because we need to know that we don't, it's okay that we struggle. It's okay that we doubt. Thomas was not harshly rebuked by Jesus. I love that Jesus chose Thomas. I love that the scriptures doesn't try to hide the blemishes from its pages. We question at times. We doubt at times. Jesus is patient when we do. And here we are at the sixth I am statement in verse 6. It's another of his claim to being God in the flesh. And if you remember, each of them reveal another facet of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Look at verse 6. Jesus says to Thomas, so this whole statement is aimed at Thomas first. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Who is he? He is the way and the truth and the life. What did he come to earth to do? To bring those who believe to the heavenly Father. That's the job of Jesus. That's the work of redemption. He came to show the way and to bring people to God. Now, it's important to understand, though, the grammar of verse 6. Because Jesus is not giving us a string of descriptive terms. Like, I'm three separate things, the way, the truth, and the life. This is actually an elliptical statement. It's better to read it this way. I am the way because I am the truth and because I am the life. Now, let me say that again. This is really important. I am the way because I am the truth. Because I am the life. That's what an elliptical statement does. It just removes some words and strings things together. And Jesus is the way to the Father because he is the living word of God. He is the truth and flesh. He is the only way that God provided in order to obtain forgiveness of sins and receive eternal life. This is what John 5, 24 means. Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. He has passed from death to life. Christian, you pass from death to life. Jesus is the way to the Father because he has the power of eternal life. Just a few verses before that, Jesus said, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Now look closely back at verse 6. One of the most common questions, by the way, the millennium generation, you're getting hit by this and you're asking this more than anybody right now on the planet, according to statistics. Here's one of the most common questions that I get asked. Is Jesus really the only way to heaven? Now, I'm going to guess that a crowd this size some of you may not be 100% sold on that statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I'm telling you, this has trickled in and created cracks within the Christian community, especially our younger people. They no longer fully embrace that statement, which paves a way for pluralism, which is just simply this, that you've got the mountain, and at the top is God and eternal life, but there's a lot of different paths that will get you there. Christianity is one of them. That's all the rage in our culture in America. 
And our culture preaches against religious, or rather it preaches religious tolerance, believing that different religions are going to get you to heaven. It recoils from the claim that Jesus made that he is the only way to be home in heaven. Look at it again. I am the way, not a way. Look at verse 6. Very definite article. I am the way and the truth and the life. That means there's not another way besides Jesus. There's not another body of truth that can save you besides Jesus. And there's not another being that can give you life but Jesus. No one comes to the Father except through me. That could not be hardly clear. That's exclusivism. That means it excludes any other religion. It is not inclusivism, which is all the rage today. Now, I want to camp on that for a moment because this is where I see the erosion happening in our younger Christians. You're being assailed. You're being attacked with the idea that this is no longer tolerable to say that Jesus is the only way to God. You've got to buttress your faith. You've got to get back to the words of Jesus and you've got to cling to them. But how is verse 6 a comfort to a troubled heart? The access to our Heavenly Father isn't something you get when you finally die. Like you don't all of a sudden get eternal life the moment your earthly life is done. If you're a Christian, you've already got eternal life. That already beats within your heart. It is already in yourself. Eternal life has begun for you. And the access to your Father in heaven, you already have it. It is now, it's today, it's every moment of every day, and it's through Jesus. And this is the incredible statement of Hebrews 10. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, that would be Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. In other words, Jesus is saying, listen, climb into your dad's lap. I know the ocean's up over the boat. I know your soul is troubled. His lap is waiting for you. Get in there, pray, believe in him, know he's your heavenly father, and get to him and take your cares with you. Are your emotions a jittery bundle of anxiety? Listen, go to the Father now. Jesus is the way. He's how you get there. And if your thoughts are a jumble of confused agitation, go to the Father right now. Jesus is the truth. And if your life is a mess of bad choices that you have made, then go to the Father right now with every one of your cares because Jesus is the life. Christian, get in to see the Father if your heart is troubled. He wants to be with you. So what do we learn? When trouble rocks your heart, and it's coming, remember to trust God through it all. He knows exactly what he's doing. Remember he is your heavenly father, and you know him because Jesus has revealed him to you. Remember your future. You have an eternal home with God. And remember that because of Jesus, not only will we one day be with the Father forever, today you could be in his presence now. Why? Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen? Let's pray.